Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is John Mariganori. John is best known as the former CEO of Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, the RNA interference drug developer. He spent 19 years there as CEO before stepping down at the end of 2021. Alnylam figured out how to make a new therapeutic modality, gene silencing with double-stranded oligonucleotide therapies. Alnylam's technology has now been translated into five marketed medicines, and there's plenty more in the pipeline. The company has more than 2,000 employees and a market value that exceeds 26 billion. Since leaving Alnylam, John has taken on a sort of senior statesman role in biotech. He's wired in with investors such as Arch Venture Partners, Atlas Venture, RTW Investments, and Blackstone. And he serves on a variety of public company boards, including Agios Pharmaceuticals, Beam Therapeutics, Chimera Therapeutics, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals. He advises a number of young and hungry scientific entrepreneurs. John seems to be everywhere there's some cool translational science work to be done. I joke with him that he's like the Dos Equis man of biotech, the beer commercial that features the supposedly most interesting man in the world. This conversation was recorded live in Seattle on April 25th in front of an audience at the Life Science Innovation Northwest Conference. We talk about John's early life, key early career experiences, a few major events at Elnilum, and a bit of his views on science and policy. Now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, scientist.com. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life sciences reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. Now, please join me and John Mariganori on the long run. So, John, let's start a little bit on you. Your parents were immigrants. That's right. How did they end up coming to Chicago, where you were born? Yeah, so I am the very proud son of two Greek immigrants who came to this country. Um, the name is unusual. Most people think I'm Italian or they don't really know what I am because there's no I at the end. Um, but I'm Greek. My, my original name was Melaganus, and it's an Ellis Island um, story of the name turning from Melaganus, which is notably Greek, to Mariganori, which is notably nothing. Um, but it, it is that story. And um, my parents came to Chicago in the 50s. My father, you know, finished up his residency at the University of Chicago. He's a pathologist or was a pathologist. And, um, you know, I was born in the early 60s. Wonderful time to be born. And do you have any brothers or sisters? I do. I've got, a, I've got an older brother who's a neurologist down at Tulane. And then I've got a younger sister who lives in Boston. What part of Chicago did you grow up? So we grew up in uh, Rogers Park, and then we moved to Skokie, Illinois. And most of my life was in Skokie. But then I went to the University of Chicago for both my undergrad degree and my graduate degree. So I lived down in Hyde Park as well. What kind of student were you? Well, I, I, I'm, you know, I was actually a bit of a nerd. 
Luke. Um, and uh, loved uh, loved doing loved science. Um, you know, my father was a um, pathologist, as I said. So he he introduced me to science and medicine. And and you know, pathologists have clinical labs, and I used to go work in the summer at, in his in his clinical lab, um, and basically learned all about you know blood samples and urine samples and testing and evaluation. And I loved it. Uh, particularly loved doing um, pathology with the microtome and cutting slices of, of tissues. So I learned, I learned my love of science and medicine from my father. But my mother gave me um, probably the most secret ingredient that's needed for a CEO, which is the um, ingredient of optimism. So the optimism for my mother and the love of science and medicine for my father um, made me who I am today. Yeah, what did they imagine that you and your brother could achieve? Well, they, they were hell-bent on um, my brother and I becoming physicians. And I think my father's dream was that I and my brother and I would be part of a medical practice that we would have together, American Orient Sons or something. Um, and that never happened. He was disappointed. In fact, when I went to go get my PhD, my father, who's now passed, um, was very worried. He was convinced I'd just drive a taxi, that I'd never be able to, I'd never amount to anything and so forth. And he was, he was sort of right. So, who, <laughs> yeah, but you, you ended up making a life in science. I did. So who um, inspired you, guided you through um, undergraduate or graduate school years? Yeah. I mean, look, I was so lucky to work with amazing people, both when I was being trained in the academy uh, by my thesis advisor and then another close mentor at the University of Chicago. Um, but then the fact that my thesis advisor went into industry in the early 80s um, and I had the opportunity of following him to do a postdoctoral study in industry was what introduced me to uh, basically biotech. And I made the decision at that point that I didn't want to be an academic scientist, which is what I originally thought I would do and just write grants and publish papers, but rather that I wanted to be involved in the endeavor of, of discovering medicines with um, other, you know, like-minded, smart people. Now, this was not necessarily the cultural norm in no. academia. How, oh, no. Why do you think your advisor was um, keen on yeah. uh, industry and translational science? You know, it was a very interesting time. So this is, we're talking about the early 80s. Biotech was just beginning. Um, my uh, so the Upjohn Company, which is where my thesis advisor went to, um, it located in Kalamazoo, Michigan. They decided they were going to build up their own biotechnology center in, of all places, Kalamazoo, and um, and they recruited a number of different academic leaders out of regional um, universities like Chicago to go help become sort of the nexus of that new biotechnology effort. And so that was my intro to it at the end of the day, you know, very, very, um, really remarkable period when, um, you know, everything looked possible with recombinant DNA. I mean, we were thinking about, you know, therapies, we were thinking about, you know, agricultural opportunities, we were thought, thinking about veterinary opportunities. And so that was the world that I started my biotech career in, which, you know, is an exciting part of the biotech applications at the end. Your mom had given you the optimism. Absolutely. And now, now you could see it in front of you. Like, I'm a young guy, and yeah. there's a lot of things happening here that I could be a part of. Yeah, I'll never forget, Luke, the 
maybe some of you might remember this, those of you that are around my age, but there was a Time um, uh, front cover article around interferon and how interferon was going to be the cure for literally every disease in the world. And it featured, you know, a lot of people that I've subsequently gotten to know very well, people like Wally Gilbert and Phil Sharp and, and other people. But I remember coming home one Sunday from the university. I was doing my graduate work. My parents had time as a subscription. I saw the, saw the article. I read it voraciously. And I think at that point, I sort of got the bug around where this could all go. If you could really take a protein, make it in a recombinant source, um, and then use it for human medicine, that would just be a powerful thing to, um, an exciting thing to be involved with. Uh-huh. So how did you end up coming out here to Seattle to Zymo Genetics? So after, while I was at Upjohn, um, I decided I would leave that postdoctoral set of work and figure out the best place to go. And I applied to a number of companies. There was an opportunity at Sharing Plow. There was an opportunity at Biogen. And there was an opportunity at Zymo Genetics. And um, I, re- I came out here, met with the group at Zymo, fell in love with the team, um, you know, met obviously with some of the founders like Earl Davey, one of the greats uh, here at the University of Washington, and um, just thought it'd be exciting to be here working with that group of people. I mean, Cybergenetics was really one of the frontier companies in recombinant DNA all, all across the world. And so being part of that group, being part of that team was really, really exciting. It's where I learned clotting of all things. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that turned out to you know, show up later in my career a few times, which is good. Um, but it is, it was a very, very exciting company. So I made, I made the decision to come out here. Um, and I was recently married at that time with an ex-wife and, uh, we only stayed here for a year and then we went to Boston. She didn't like Seattle. She didn't like Seattle. She, she didn't like, I don't know why, you know, it's a great city. I really like it out here, but, um, it was, it fell for her. It fell far away. So we ended up going to Boston, where the um, discussion I had with Biogen from a previous uh, discussion, um, you know, turned into a job offer, and I went there. You were working on similar things with clotting factors. So I went to I went to Biogen not to do clotting because that wasn't their focus, but rather to work on phospholipase inhibitors, which actually was the, the product of my thesis research of all things. Um, but at Biogen, there was always an opportunity for scientists in the lab. And I was a bench scientist at Biogen. There was op- an opportunity for scientists to, to use what they call 20% time to basically explore new things. And I started tinkering with the idea of making a thrombin inhibitor using the structure of the protein from the leech called hirudin. And so started working on sort of a peptide-based hirudin molecule, which ultimately became a drug that um, made it to market um, for the treatment of, uh, or for the, you know, anticoagulation of patients during interventional cardiology procedures, a drug called Angiomax, as it was ultimately um, uh, called. But it was a really, really fun experience being involved in discovering a novel molecule, filing the IND with that molecule, and running the program all through development. Biogen ended up not um, taking it to market, we ended up stopping the program, focusing on Avonex, which you know was a great drug in multiple sclerosis, and we partnered the um, thrombin inhibitor program with the medicines company, uh, which was the first of two seminal 
deals I did with the medicines company over the years. Um, the second one being in Cleesaran, which now, happened much later. You were a young scientist. You made a discovery. The thing made it all the way. It's the rarest thing. It made it all the way through to an FDA-approved product. This is the kind of thing that um, gets you noticed by senior management. Yeah. And, um, that helps. And, and maybe <laughs> maybe um, expanded your horizons a little bit that, hey, there's a whole lot more to this business than just doing what I do in the lab. And and so this was your education in how the biopharma industry works. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, I the 10 years I spent at Biogen, I, I really view as my um, postdoc, my my seminal learning experience. I, I, you know, obviously was involved in drug discovery. I was involved in drug development. I then transitioned to be involved with business development and, and portfolio management, uh, commercialization, uh, as well at Biogen. So it, it was just a fantastic experience. It's why, you know, a lot of young people ask me, how do I get started in the biotech industry? I tell them, go work in a larger cap or mid to larger cap biotech company like a Biogen, like a Vertex, like a CGen, and learn about drug discovery, learn about drug development, learn about drug commercialization before you think you can really do it on your own. A lot of times young people just want to go off and be a CEO on day one and I think that's just asking too much without a lot of um, experience. Now, how big was Biogen in these days? Biogen- 500 employees or so? No, it was 200. Oh, so it was really uh, it, a mid-sized company. It was a mid-sized company. At the time, it was, you know, it was, it was one of the five, six known biotechnology companies, right? I mean, you had, you know, you had Genentech and, and Amgen and, and, and Chiron and, and Biogen and Genetics Institute. And then Genzyme was sort of around too at that time, but that was it. So it was big enough that it had resources and um, some qualified management that you could learn from That's right. and have exposure to. That's so right. you, you weren't lost in a really, really large organization. That's right. And you weren't thrown in completely over your head like in a five-person virtual company. That's that's exactly it. You know, and, and that's the beauty of that type of experience where, I mean, Jim Vincent was the CEO of Biogen at the time. He was just brought in. He was a storied CEO that came out of Abbott Labs and uh, one of the most amazing people I ever had a chance to work with, you know, extremely strategic thinker. Very, you know, people have polarized views on him as a leader, but I was in the camp of, of, of uh, recognizing his strengths and, and benefiting from it. Um, but uh, it was great to learn from him. And then Vicky Sato was my direct um, boss. She amazing scientific leader who still to this day I'm involved with and different things that we do together. Um, but it's just a great example of learning from really terrific people that are that are there with you. Vicky is the board chair of Timberman Report too. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. So John, so you you had this great experience at Biogen. You um, you then connected with Millennium, and um, I'm going to skip over this part because we could talk all day about this. But there was you made some terrific contacts. You broadened your network. You expanded your knowledge of the industry, um, and uh, you became uh, closer around the age 40. You're ready for a CEO. Yeah job. That's right. And that was when the Alnylam opportunity presented itself. So can you share with folks this, how, how uh, you came to be the founding CEO of Alnylam? Yeah. Well, in the summer of, of 2002, I, I had a phone call with Peter Barrett and Jean-Francois Formella, two partners over at Atlas Ventures. And they had just joined a syndicate along with Bob Nelson at Arch, who at the time was here in Seattle, 
as well as Christoph Westfall at Polaris and John Clark at Cardinal Partners around a new company called El Nylum. And they had already capitalized the company with two and a half million dollars. So it was just basically seed funded at the time. And they were looking for the initial CEO. And um, they wanted me to come in and be part of this new company. And I, they wanted me to spend some time with Phil Sharp, who I knew from the Biogen days. He was a founder of Biogen. And I spent some time with Phil, got to learn a little bit about the technology. And over the summer, you know, began to really get infected with the idea of, you know, jumping in with RNA interference um, as, a, as a new technology because it, it, was clear, it was clear to me at the time that if we could figure out how to make drugs out of small interfering RNAs, the molecules that mediate RNAi, we could create a whole new class of medicines. It was, it was, it was clear that we had big challenges, that there were enormous technical obstacles to doing what we were um, aiming to do, namely around delivery of these molecules into cells. But we knew that if we could do it, if we could harness that natural mechanism, we could have a powerful new approach to medicine. And, and that was just too tempting not to jump into. Now, this is 2002. Correct. 20 years ago. And really, we had two main modalities, small molecules right. and uh, biologics. That's right. Yes. Some different kinds of biologics, but basically that was it. Yeah. And, and a lot of other failed technologies at the time. There was antisense. Antisense. Gene therapy at the time was yep. viewed as a, you know, failed technology. It's not now, but mm -hmm. it was then. Um, antisense also has had success since then. But if you, if you teleport back to 2002, it really was all small molecules and, and protein therapeutics, monoclonals and recombinant DNA proteins. And all these other more advanced modalities were, you know, pretty much disappointments. And here you were looking at RNA interference. So double-stranded oligonucleotides that could get inside the cell and silence uh, the production of disease-related proteins, which opened up a whole canvas of targets that were previously inaccessible That's it. to uh, small molecules or biologics that by and large hit the outside of the cell. Yeah. And, and, and the last part of what you said is, was, the, was the dream. The, the first part was the scary part. All right. These, okay. these double-stranded, large oligonucleotides, 14,000 Dalton molecular weight, prone to being degraded by enzymes in the body. No way those molecules are going to get across the cell membrane. You know, they're really charged. They're really big. Um, and so that was the scary part that we really had to figure out. Um, you know, the good news is we had eyes wide open going into it. You know, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we didn't have a quixotic view that this was going to be easy. We, we knew it was going to be hard. And frankly, that made it exciting. So um, how did you get started? Well, we got started across a couple of different dimensions. I mean, the first thing we had to do was um, get a lot of money in the bank. And, and that was important. You know, we knew the original Almyla business plan um, and I remember telling Terry McGuire over Polaris this this plan, and Terry was like, "Oh no, there's no way we could do that." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, that's what it's going to take." But we, our plan was that it would take us anywhere from one to two billion dollars to and ten to twenty years to bring our first product to market. <laughs> so that's the private business plan, <laughs> but then you, you can't exactly say that in public. Well, you know, that was the plan um, that we did tell our investors at the time uh -huh. because. That was what it would take. And, you know, frankly, we used data from Bigen, Genentech, Amgen, Chiron, all those companies. 
Now, look, we knew that along the way, there would be many, many moments of time in which you would have strategic value inflection points so that you wouldn't be just throwing a billion dollars into the company on day one. But it's a sobering thing. It's because, sobering. Because you were asking them for what? 20 million or something to get started? We were asking them for pennies compared to what we ultimately raised. I mean, yeah. you know, we raised, um, in my 20 years of being there, we raised over seven and a half billion dollars. And we invested um, uh, over five billion dollars over that period of time. Now, half of that money came from um, selling equity, um, both in private and public markets. And the other half came from partnerships that we did with pharmaceutical companies, both in the form of upfront payments and R&D funding, et cetera. But it's, it's amazing to think about all that capital that we got deployed, that got deployed ultimately in building the company. Can you talk about setting priorities and how you thought about getting your first bit of traction as a yeah. business, like selecting targets, disease indications, delivery vehicles? Yeah. Well, let's let's start with um, let's start with the last one first, delivery vehicles. So, so again, I I I commented before that um, you know we we knew that delivery of these you know, large molecules into the right cell types in the body safely was going to be the number one hurdle. And we really took two approaches at the beginning that, that gained traction. One was to use lipid nanoparticles as a way of delivering uh, these molecules. And then the second was um, to use conjugates, so small molecule ligands that we would, you know, chemically link to the small interfering RNA to get a receptor-mediated uptake approach. And, and those two approaches ultimately panned out. Now, we can go into the stories of each of them. They were quite remarkable. But that's, that's how we achieved delivery um, to go to the last chapter of the book. But the other aspect of therapeutic area, so we were very, very focused on finding where the technology can go to make the most important medicines for patients, regardless of the therapeutic area. And this is the story with any platform technology, whether it was Genentech with recombinant DNA or Regeneron with antibodies. You never, ever, ever, ever focus your strategy on a therapeutic area. You go where the technology can make the most important medicines, period. Right? With, with Genentech, they did insulin and growth hormone and TPA and Pulmazyme and all these different therapeutic areas. Regeneron, ILEA, uh, Dupixent, uh, COVID antibodies, um, PD-1. They never fo you never focus on the therapeutic area. You go where the science can generate the most important medicine for patients. And that's what we did at Alnalo. But you, uh, it didn't work out in a straight line. No. You picked lots of <laughs> targets that looked good at the time that so, never amounted to anything. So we went public in 2004 and our, in our NRS1, um, we had two targets and two programs that we named in our S1. One was targeting VEGF for um, age-related macular degeneration. And the second was targeting alpha-synucleant for Parkinson's disease. Both of those programs never made it uh, uh, even into the clinic uh, and, and certainly never made it to market. So, you know, but that's where we thought it would be easiest the first, at first. We thought by going into local administration, either in the eye or in the CNS, that we might actually be able to achieve delivery. Um, little did we know that those were actually far more difficult than achieving systemic delivery of RNAi therapeutics to the liver. 
where using both lipid nanoparticles and conjugates, given systemically either intravenously or sub-Q, we actually got very robust and, and you know, very successful delivery. The first clinical program for the company was targeting RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, with an aerosolized approach. Um, that didn't work. Um, you know, we did a phase 2B. It narrowly missed its primary endpoint, but it didn't pan out. And again, the reason was it was not a robust delivery like we saw with liver targeting with either LNPs or conjugates. But you learned some things. We uh, learned a lot. From those programs and applied. You, you had time and space to breathe. We did. You had enough money and um, you're able to <laughs> suspend disbelief maybe uh, among your staff, uh, like to keep the faith right. when, when things weren't working. At, at least with our board. <laughs> so, uh -huh. so you know the the uh, you know the the one interesting thing about a platform like what we just the journey we went through is you also learn that you have to take prototypes of your technology into the clinic safely, safely with quality, of course, and then learn from those initial clinical findings and then come back. I'll give you an example in our TTR program today. We have two products on the market. We've actually taken five programs into clinical development, five separate NCEs, two different lipid nanoparticles, one that ultimately made it, and three different um, conjugates, okay? One that ultimately made it and one more that's still in development to be an even better version of the one that's, that's on the market. So you have to be ready to go into man, learn from that early human translation, and have your research scientists optimize the platform in the research bench to then bring the better prototype forward, which might ultimately get to market. You also did a few partnerships, we which did. were important for both validation and for bringing in cash to build up your, your war chest. Uh, there was Merck first, there was Novartis, and then Roche. Um, talk a little bit about how, how did you think about partnerships? Uh, what were some of the maybe hard lessons learned? I mean, partnerships are, are if you're going to build a platform technology like like we did, and I gave you the numbers before in terms of the amount of money that we had to raise, you have to do partnerships. There's no way uh, if if your if your science and your platform is going to generate opportunities that are bigger than a bread box, why not do partnerships as a way of getting funding to help you fund your platform better, um, getting funding to help support the development of your own pipeline, but also getting that additional validation. So the first deal we did was Merck in 2003. That was a very small starter deal, I would say, seven and a half million up front, but driven by Steve Friend's, you know, real passion for um, this space and the science. And um, um, oftentimes, you know, these early deals are driven by the, the passion of an R&D leader to do something bold. And Steve that was Friend, another great Seattle another, leader, by the way, is that informatic? That's why I mentioned his name. I hope he's around uh, somewhere up here on the islands, uh, probably. Um, but Steve, uh, or in London, actually, these days. Uh, but Steve was that visionary at Merck who said, let's, let's do a, a deal with Al Nylum. And then we did one with Mark Fishman at Novartis in 2005, which was a much bigger deal. It was like $47 million up front compared to the one from, from Merck. Uh, and then something happened that was really in some ways, very good for us. Merck, um, jealous of our deal that we did with Novartis, decided that we're going to buy our competitor, which was Cerna Therapeutics. And they bought Cerna in 2006 for $1.1 billion. And um, that was really helpful for us because it set the price of an RNAi therapeutic company with a very robust premium. 
And that enabled us to then turn around and do a deal with Roche um, within the next six months for $331 million up front, which at the time was by far the largest preclinical cash up front. Cash up front. And how much did you have in the bank at that time? Half that much? Uh, at the time, we probably about had half that much. Yeah. So this really gave you a much bigger runway. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And it was well-timed. It because was. Because it was right before the financial crisis. Yeah. And uh, a lot of pharma companies throwing in the towel and saying, this RNA I business is going to take too long. It's not really working. We need to prioritize other things. Yeah. Andy Pollack at the New York Times, one of a really great science reporter who I know you know, um, he, he wrote an article in early 2011 that sort of summarized the environment around that time. It said, drug makers fever for RNA interference drugs has cooled. And I still have that um, article next to my desk uh, because it's a good reminder of, of what that time was like. But, you know, they all left. You know, the pharma industry, after dabbling with RNAi for a few years, finally realized that delivery was going to be harder than they appreciated. They also did something else, which was which is harkens back to what I commented before. They they tried to fit the round peg into the square hole. They tried to make RNA interference work in oncology. That's where they wanted it to work, and they tried to force fit it to be an oncology modality. But it it didn't work in oncology because of delivery. And even to this day, there are no oncology RNAi drugs. But they insisted on trying to make it work for oncology, and we you know, rejected that notion. But you, you tried it, didn't you try we did. liver cancer? We did, for a while? and it failed, yeah. and it failed. And so, you know, we, we realized that oncology was not the best place to go after that experience mm -hmm. with, with RNA interference, and we focused on where we could make, make hay, ultimately. And where was that? In, in the liver, targeting, targeting all the remarkable uh, disease genes expressed in the human liver, uh, especially those that where there was human genetic validation. So we, you know, we did something really clever at the time. It was not, it's, it's a playbook that's being used more often now. But at the time we said, Let, let's focus on the target where we have good delivery and let's uh, reduce our clinical and biological risk as asymptotically close to zero as possible in drug development. And that was to focus on genetically validated targets where there were human gain of function or loss of function mutations that gave us a solid foundation around targeting that gene. And, um, you know, that really played out. I mean, because we ended up having a range of successes very quickly in our clinical development activities with targets like, you know, TTR for uh, autosomal dominant inherited disease called TTR amyloidosis for, um, a disease called porphyria, a disease called primary hyperoxyluria, even, even targeting PCSK9, a very well-validated um, gene um, that's expressed in the liver for hypercholesterolemia. And that was the second partnership we did with the medicine company. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run.
So this is back to what you said earlier, following the science. This is where the science is directing you and th this is where the, your tool <laughs> is, is most useful. Then you can go read the medical literature on, okay, how many people have this TTR amyloidosis and where are they and what, what does this look like? Can, can we actually do this as a business? Yeah. And, and, and look, you know, when, when you, we also wanted to initially focus in rare diseases, we, we partnered the, the, the hypercholesterolemia program with the medicines company. We wanted to focus on rare diseases because we, we wanted to become a fully integrated biopharma company. And the best place to start in that endeavor is to start in a rare disease commercial arena where you can have a much more focused marketing and selling effort than you need in a large market. And, um, and there's no rare diseaseologist. last time I checked. Um, every rare disease is a different therapeutic area, different type of physician, KOL, et cetera. Um, and so we just brought the right people together to help us think about these diseases, these targets, these uh, opportunities, ultimately trying to make sure we can make the biggest patient impact with what we're doing. Well, we did have a favorable policy environment dating all the way back to the Orphan Drug Act that laid down the conditions for rare diseases to be um, tractable as a business. And then the late, great Henry Termeer proved that you could do it. Absolutely. With Genzyme and others followed. And so you, you entered that landscape and knew that if you were successful at uh, silencing TTR and you could deliver a clinical benefit to these however many patients there were with both the polyneuropathy and the cardiomyopathy, you could sell it at, at a reasonable price High that price. you could you try to recoup some of this investment, all the hard work that you had put in. Absolutely. I mean, you know, thanks to Henry and the leadership that he demonstrated in that whole model of advancing rare disease products. And, you know, that, you know, again, when you think about the timing that was in the in the first part of the century, you know, that that model was still just maturing as a model for, you know, building a successful company. The the Sanofi acquisition happened, what was it, 2011, 2012, in that time frame, ultimately. Um, but, you know, Genzyme was really just getting into its stride with rare diseases. And so we, you know, we felt confident that if we were successful in bringing really transformative medicines to patients, that we could have an impact and, frankly, build a successful company as well. Okay, so on TTR, you had a couple of different things going in parallel. The original one was Patisaran with the lipid nanoparticle, now marketed as Onpatro. Correct. And that was the first one to reach the market. I believe it was 2018. That's it. Uh, but behind that, you had a Galnet conjugate. Correct. And and what was your thinking around that second generation program? What were you hoping to accomplish there? So, um, as I said before, you know, we ultimately brought a number of different prototypes of our TTR programs into the clinic uh, before we ended up with two successful drugs on the market. The first um, LNP was a molecule TTR01 that never made it. We had to go back and retrofit it, make it better, and that became on Patro. In the case of our Galmac conjugate technology, which really has become the mainstay technology for delivery, the first product we brought into the clinic was a molecule, an ill-fated molecule called Revusaran. And it was a first prototype and needed very high doses of drug. We put it, we put it into a phase three clinical study uh, back around 2014, it started enrolling patients late 2014. And then in 2016, we get a phone call from some investigators saying, hey, you know, uh, we're seeing some worsening neuropathy in the patients that are receiving this drug. 
um, you know, what's going on. And this is a drug that's meant to help prevent progression of neuropathy. So it was odd to get those reports. And we had this ongoing phase three going on at the time. And so out of the abundance of caution, we asked the data safety and monitoring board of the phase three trial to do an unblinded look at the safety of rivucerab versus placebo in about 100 patients that had been enrolled at that point in the phase three study. And I'll never forget the phone call on a Friday um, late afternoon while I was driving up to Vermont from Akshay Veshna, our head of R&D, telling me, um, we just got the word from the DSMB, we've got to stop the study. There's a mortality imbalance against the drug in that phase three. More mortality. people more people in the drug group dying Correct. in the placebo group. Correct. Hopefully, thankfully, it was a small number, but still, when that happens, there's, no, there's only one thing you could do, and you stop the study, you stop uh, the drug, um, and we made the right decision to do that. And, you know, we then had to figure out why did that happen? Was it something about that GALMAC technology that was somehow yielding, you know, adverse effects that, and so forth? We did an investigation. I mean, even to this day, we don't fully know why, but it's clear that the higher doses of that first-generation GALMAC molecule probably created some mitochondrial toxicity that was evident in the patients that had that drug at high doses. And so what happened, of course, during that time is we also made these molecules much more potent, much lower requirements of drug, and ultimately that's what saved us uh -huh. at the end. You didn't know any of this at the time, of course, no. and uh, you had to announce this on Monday to Wall Street. It was a Tuesday, but yeah. Tuesday? Okay, yeah. so you lost half of your stock value? Yeah, I lost seven, you, seven billion of, of value at that, on that day. And shares went down to what? 10 bucks? It was, no, it was around uh, $30 a share at that point. Uh huh. Maybe, maybe into the 20s. You're at $200 a share now. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> um, it, was, um, it was a dark moment. For Very them. dark. You didn't have any products. You had been around for 14 years, had spent a lot of money, had made a yeah. lot of promises, yeah. and people were unhappy. People were unhappy. People were asking why. They wanted answers. And we, we, couldn't, we couldn't really give them a, a, a credible answer. And what we tell people is, we don't know why this is happening. We're going to investigate it. We don't think it's a broader platform issue. We had other reasons to believe that it wasn't a broader platform issue. But they, of course, were worried that it was a bigger platform issue, um, as they should have been worried. I mean, it, it's, it's a legitimate concern at that point in time. Um, but we, we communicated uh, these, this news in the right way, appropriately. Uh, we did the right thing from a patient perspective at the end of the day. Um, and, and, and what's amazing, Luke, is what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, to quote Friedrich Nietzsche, because within nine months of that very, very difficult day in October of 2016, we had the readout of our other phase three trial that was running at the same time using LNPs, this is on Patro, where we blew away the primary endpoint with a p-value of 9.26 times 10 to the minus 24th, almost the reciprocal of Avogadro's number. And, um, and all the secondary endpoints hit as well. And within that short period of time, nine months of misery, we were able to turn the story around in a very robust way. You saw that data and thought, all right, this is going to be our New England Journal paper. It is, and it was. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> it was. Um, First of about 11 or 12. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, okay. So fast forward, Unpatro makes it all the way to the market. Um, Ellen Island becomes a commercial company. Uh, and then in rapid succession, the, the platform starts to do what platforms are supposed to do, which Correct. is generate more and more products yeah. off of that same technological backbone. M- most importantly, Galvan yeah. education. Absolutely. That, that came later. Absolutely. Yeah. We ended up having drug approvals in 2018, 19, 20, 21, and 22. I mean, that is just unbelievable. We were stoked. Uh, now, one of those, one of those programs was in Cleesarad, which was uh, partnered with the medicines company. We had a very active role in it. And ultimately, the medicines company got bought by Novartis um, for $9.7 billion in 2019. So it, it, it really was an amazing story of how this innovation, once we had it um, fixed, was able to generate that sustainable flow. And, you know, I, I don't think there'll be, um, well, there may be an approval this year, cardiomyopathy, sec- supplemental NDA. But for new chemical entities, hopefully next year we'll see the hemophilia product make it to market, uh, which is partnered with Sanofi. So end of 21, you decide, time to move on. 19 years at El Nilo. Uh, what, did, what did you decide to do next? So, I mean, running a company for 20 years is not for the faint of heart. And... Um, you know, it, it, it was an exciting time because I, to some extent, the goal of building this new class of medicines had been achieved. At the time I announced my, my resignation, we had four products on the market and the fifth one was in registration. So, you know, we were pretty set up. Um, I also candidly um, um, really love R&D and really love innovation more than I love running a much bigger company. It's, it's not easy to run a much bigger company. 1,000 employees by the time you uh, 1,800. 1,800. 1,800 wow. in 20 countries around the world. So not as much fun. as and, and, and also, I think the pandemic weighed into it like it's weighed into a lot of us in, in, in many different ways. Um, but I really was excited about a new chapter where I can be more of a multiplier of innovation across the industry as opposed to one person focused on one thing. And... To that end, I've really built a portfolio of activities, working with a number of different venture groups, working with a number of of different companies on the board, uh, and then mentoring, spending a lot of time mentoring and advising first-time CEOs about, you know, how to build their album, how to build their new company and and make it very successful. I I refer to it as sort of my my grandfather stage. My wife hates that (laughs) analogy because we're not grandparents yet. Um, but, um, you know, she thinks it invokes age. Um, but, um, you know, in some ways it is what it is because, um, you know, as a grandparent, you're able to enjoy the child. And then when there's poop in the diaper, you give it back to the parents. Um, so, um, and, and, and that is a, that is a wonderful way to get, to be engaged with innovation, with, you know, great scientific leaders and business leaders that are, trying to do great things and trying to make great medicines for patients. Well, let's just rattle through some of these organizations. I mean, it, it really looks like you're the kid in the candy store. There's Arch Venture Partners, Atlas Venture, RTW Investments, Blackstone, just for investment firms alone. Yes. I, how do you manage the conflicts, by the way? So, so actually, that's, that, is the, that is the least, that's the smallest problem. It really is. Because, first of all, all of those groups are doing frankly, pretty different things. Okay. And if there is ever overlap, I just, depending on who I commit to first, I recuse myself 
from the other group on that on that other project. Okay, but, so what's the hard part? The, the, well, the hard part is just time, really. Uh-huh. I mean, I, it, you know, because I'd love to spend more time with all of them. Uh-huh. Um, but but I you know I, I learned from I learned from Tom Daniel who who you know was a, a famed and wonderful head of R and D at Celgene and sort of left Celgene and did a similar type of thing as I'm doing. And he said, I, I want to work with the venture groups. I don't want to work for them. And, and that's sort of the same view I have. I, I love working with them, the great people. All of the groups you mentioned, by the way, were seminal in the Elmylam story. So I, I view this as a little bit of a, of a give back to these groups as well. You know, okay. both Arch and Atlas were venture investors. Um, RTW was our largest investor when we were trading at six bucks a share in 2010. Uh, Blackstone, we did this massive um, partnership with Blackstone in 2020, um, you know, to, um, you know, capitalize the company further. So these were all groups that um, I had a relationship with before. But let's talk about this new chapter because 20 years at Elnilum, thinking, living and breathing RNAi for 20 years. Um, now all of a sudden you can pop your head up and look around at all these things going on. Yeah. Cell therapy, gene therapy, CRISPR, targeted uh, heterobifunctional molecules, um, antibodies, antibody drug conjugates, radiopharmaceuticals, on and on and on. on not even talking about the drug discovery technologies. Once you've had a chance to kind of get a, a, a good look under the hood at what all these investment groups are doing and all these other companies that you're serving on, um, what's your view about where we're at in the, the evolution of drug discovery? Are, are we entering a, a new period of of possibility, we are we are at the most amazing time of science and medicine, bar none, um, that I've seen in my almost forty years of time in this industry. I mean, the the range of of, of different modalities, technologies, tools to create high impact medicines for patients is um, unquestionably the greatest and broadest and and best we've ever seen. Um, you know, the 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 number of arrows that we have in our quiver to fight human disease today is just beyond one's imagination of what it was like. I mean, we talked just a minute ago about, you know, small molecules and recombinant proteins back in the early 2000s, right? That's what, that's still, what we had. Still very good modalities, by the way. They, they still are. And there's still even advanced technologies with both of those, right, that are emerging. But it, it's just incredible today to think about where the world is going with gene editing. I mean, look at, look at the fact that we just had the first filing of a gene editing technology last month, right? And barely, barely a decade after the original discovery. Uh, so the, the, the CRISPR therapeutics vertex correct. treatment for in sickle. sickle cell, in and sickle. it's cured 31 of the first 32 patients. That's correct. And so there's an amazing, also the other thing that we're seeing is an amazing compression of time to, to generate. Now, look, we're, we're also, in a, in a very challenging capital markets environment, right? Um, but to me, the amount of money that's available to build amazing companies and, and, and advance great science is ample. And the ideas are abundant, fully abundant. The, the biggest issue is people. And so part of my portfolio um, is to really focus on the next generation of leaders. Um, I'm involved with the Tremere Foundation, which is um, really committed to um, mentoring and developing future CEOs. I'm involved with a remarkable student-led organization called Nucleate, which many of you have heard of, I'm sure, which 
blows me away in terms of how the students have gotten together to organize around life sciences and entrepreneurship. So there's so many opportunities to help train that, that, that you know, group of future leaders for this industry um, that I think personally for me is really important to get back. Nucleate, by the way, what draws its roots to the Harvard Biotech Club and the MIT right. Biotech Group, where a bunch of graduate students and postdocs got together and said, we need to learn something about translational science and commercialization because we don't get this in our traditional uh, curriculum. So we'll take it upon ourselves. And during the pandemic, they were able to expand this virtually to other major hubs of great research centers, including Seattle. Absolutely. Seattle now has a chapter two. Yep. Uh, and so they're, they're passing on and codifying these learnings and connecting with people like you who they can learn from. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Yes. Um, John, do you think we're going to, uh, with all these technologies uh, and, and learnings, uh, the knowledge that is being passed down, uh, hard-earned experiences, are we going to slay the dragon of R&D productivity, what, what, yeah. like get better, like faster, less expensive, higher probability of success, uh, like change that whole math model that's so tough? Yeah, well, this is my mother speaking right now, but yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, because I, I, I look, I, I've seen it. I mean, I just gave you the example of, of um, CRISPR technology having its first NDA in a remarkably short period of time. You know, one of the things is, it, it, one of the beauties of a modality is once you figure out how to, how to reproducibly and in a modular fashion make a drug out of a given modality, you can actually do it sustainably. I mean, our probability of technical success with RNAi at Alnylam from IND filing to positive phase three was over 60%, hmm. including that, you know, ill-fated Rebusaran blow up. So it, it, it is incredible what you can do with these platforms. And, and I, I don't see why that won't happen with gene editing technologies. I'm on the board of Beam with gene, with base, base editing, which I, think is an exciting way of doing gene editing. I'm also involved with a company, Chroma, which is doing epigenetic silencing. I mean, those type of companies that will have a reproducible and modular approach um, will really, I think, buck the odds on productivity. Um, there are other technologies like protein degradation technologies, you know, ProTac. Um, you know, I'm on the board of Chimera um, that's sort of, you know, using that technology to come up with small molecule drugs that can reproducibly target proteins that are typically undruggable. Um, you know, we got a better toolkit than ever before, and it allows us to think about medicine in a fundamentally different way and help patients in ways that could never have been imagined before. How do you think about the advances in computation? Both the cloud computing kind of raw horsepower for analyzing large data sets, as well as, you know, everything we hear about with AI. Both for protein folding, because this is Seattle, we know a lot about that, yeah. and um, this more latest iteration on the generative AI. I, it's really good for limericks. I, the other day, I, was, I asked ChatGPT to write RNAi limericks. That does a really good job. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I, I'm really excited about where that's going. I, 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 I greatly admire the work um, here in Seattle from David Baker and his team over at the Institute of Protein Design. I, I think... AlphaFold, I, I couldn't, as a, I'm a protein chemist by background, so the concept of having uh, the ability of looking at the structure of hundreds of millions of proteins 
is mind-blowing. And that is going to absolutely accelerate the pace of discovery, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It is, right now as we speak. So I think that future is very, very bright. There's, there's also opportunities for you know, using AI to help us discover targets that we never imagined um, would be out there uh, before. Um, involved with Colin Hill at ATIA on that type of endeavor. Um, so lots of opportunities for AI, for target discovery, optimizing drug discovery, novel protein design, novel design of macrocycles and mini cycles, um, lots of places where this is going to go. It's just a very, very bright future in that regard. What worries you? Well, the things that worry me the most are, frankly, um, policies that might get enacted that basically somehow limit what we could do. I, I you know, we all just lived through the IRA and that and that process. I think the it's the Inflation Reduction the, Act. The Inflation Reduction Act and 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 the impact that'll have on the industry. You know, maybe, John, for those who don't know, could you explain what that means yeah. for the industry? It, what it really means is is for the first time we're going to have negotiated drug prices or price controls in the in the U.S., which we never had before in this in this in this country. Uh, which in many ways was why, you know, we, we've been so successful with innovation in this country. So, look, I, there are elements of the IRA that I think are um, good. I mean, the price caps on out-of-pocket costs is really, really good. Um, I think that'll help patients in a, in a big way. Um, there's some other changes that I've always been favorable. I've never been a fan of drug price increases on an annual basis. We capped them at El Nilum to CPIU. Um, so that's another new measure that's in there. Um, but I think this um, price negotiation process that bifurcates NDAs versus BLAs is especially problematic. This is the one where small molecules under an NDA are only going to get nine years of, of market exclusivity. Correct. Uh, and biologics under the BLA are going to get 13 years. That's it. That's so right. it creates an incentive for venture capitalists and entrepreneurs to focus on biologics versus small molecules, right. even though there are still, but the if you're following the science, the science would direct you to small molecules yeah. in, in many, many cases. In many cases. And it's, it's, it's the most insane piece of, of legislation in the sense that, you know, why does the government want to incent greater, more expensive medicines that have to be given intravenously as opposed to less expensive small molecules that might be um, e more easily made generic also in the future. I mean, it's, it's, it's just bad policy. It's just bad policy that, unfortunately, as much as we tried, we couldn't stop, and it's now law. Um, but look, you know, we'll get through this. Um, the, the concept of having, ultimately, genericization of medicines, I think, is really important. Nothing, nothing about what we do as innovators can survive sustainably without that time-based reward for the innovation going away at some point. Because if you don't create headroom for the new breakthroughs to come through, then these older medicines that are out there are basically going to chew up all, all of society's dollars. So you have to have that system. And, you know, I personally felt that we had that system, at least with small molecules before. People played shenanigans with big molecules, and that's one of the reasons we have the IRA at this point in time. Unfortunately, the permanent patents on some of these uh, tired old franchises, um, 
that we, we, we unacceptable. we're paying a lot of money as uh, Unac- government. Funds. Unacceptable. And that's why you get bad legislation that comes out of it at the end of the day when an industry breaks the rules. So I think, I think, you know, it is what it is now, but getting back to your question, I, what, what worries me is, um, policymaking that can harm what we do in this industry, which is just so remarkable to help patients. And, you know, I mean, as we heard earlier, sometimes it's coming at the state level, right? So sometimes you can fight the federal war and then you get a piece of state legislation, which can really disrupt the policy environment in that, in that local, in that local environment. So that's what worries me the most, but, you know, again, you know, I am an optimist and I, and I, and I feel that we shall get through this. We will adapt to this new law. We'll obviously fight it as it needs to get fought so that we can do the right thing because we, w- we want to be champions for our innovation. We have to be. Um, but I ultimately think this industry is just bound for sustained, uh, remarkable success and an incredible future. You were chairman of Bile from 2017 to 19. You're right. Um, while at El Nylum. Correct. You stayed on the board of Bile. Still am. Um, why, you really have gotten politically involved in a lot of issues, not just the IRA, but I mean, we talked just last week about this Supreme Court case with, uh, on Mifepristone that yeah. um, would potentially undercut the authority of the FDA to yeah. make safety and efficacy determinations. Um, why have you um, chosen to... Uh, put on that political activist hat? Because all of us have to be outspoken on these issues. We cannot, we, everybody here, everybody here and on the podcast, if, if you're in this industry, you have to be willing to be vocal on some of these policy matters that are, number one, just wrong, okay? And, 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 and not just my wrong, but I think wrong at a policy level, and also really important for what we do as, as innovators. So I think it's very important that um, CEOs are willing to speak out. I, I reject this concept that CEOs should just um, abide to a Milton Friedman-like um, approach and stay silent on any social matter. Uh, I think that's wrong. It's not how we should operate as a society. And I think we've seen political environments where, frankly, the only sane people in the House are from the private sector. And um, that's another reason why I think sometimes we have to speak up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You've uh, used your voice uh, for other things, too. Uh, like it, you had an article on my publication a month or two ago about uh, work from home. Um, <laughs> would you care to summarize that one and some of the reaction that you got to it? Well, it, it, it's a very charged issue, and it's about a 50-50 um, belief set out there um, and, and in terms of how people view this issue. Personally, I find it impossible to imagine how you can build great companies without great cultures. And I've seen that before. Um, And it's extremely difficult to build a culture, um, you know, for a company without people being together, teaming together, working together. Um, It's also very difficult to teach the next generation of biotech leaders if you don't have a whiteboard and, and help them understand what you do and why you do it and so forth. So I, I really find it very difficult to think about how we can do what we do, which is probably as difficult, if not more difficult, as flying a man to the moon without you know, having our people together. Now, look, there are arguably types of companies where you can do it. You know, Maybe they're developing one product and it's a group of very experienced drug developers who are able to do it from 
five different locations around the country. I've got companies I work with that are that are doing that, and they get along great, and they're very effective. But when I think about um, lab-based companies that are that have an active research organization uh, and manufacturing, and they want their researchers to be in a lab, and their manufacturing people to be in a lab, but they don't think that they need um, their finance people to be there, their legal people to be there. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, we want our kids to get back to school, right? And they, we want them physically to get back to school. Well, guess what? It's for the same reason that we need to get back into the office, plain and simple, all right? And, you know, and people thinking that we can have our children learn robustly from a video, um, we all saw how that experiment went. So I'm a big believer. I know I'm perhaps a little bit more passionate about this topic than I should be. Um, but I really do think that it's important. And I've seen it. I've seen companies that have been physical during this time in present, um, and they've done great. Now, I think the problem is the hybrid problem. I think we've always had virtual employees. Um, I think what is hybrid is the problem, and it's too ill-defined. And I think companies need to go to defining what hybrid is. Maybe it's two days a week, maybe it's three days a week, whatever. But define what it is, as opposed to leaving it bespoke to the individual employee, where I think it's very difficult to ultimately get people to work together in a, in a team. We've gotten some pushback on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I've also gotten a lot of people saying, this is great, totally agree. So it's, and it's about a 50-50 mix. Mm -hmm. um, and so, look, I think every, flexibility is really important. I think everybody wants flexibility. We should have it. Everybody should have it, always. But I think people getting back together and you know building great companies and making important medicines is a physical engagement exercise. Last thing I want to ask you, John, um, you have all these different things that you could work on. And you seem to be saying yes to a lot of things. You must say no to a lot of things, I do. too. How I do you do. think about what things that you really want to work on now and why? Yeah. Well, I want to work on things that are um, at the frontiers of science. Um, you know, I, I, I really enjoy working with companies that are pushing new scientific advances that I personally find exciting. I, I, don't, I don't want to spend time with anything that's incremental. Um, and I... There are times in which people have really good ideas that might be an incremental idea, and I'm just not even remotely interested. Um, so I, 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 I really go with the science. I really follow the science at the end of the day. But I also want to help you know the new generation of, of CEOs and leaders out there and, and spend a lot of time um, you know, with them and, and also want to help uh, grow a more diverse leadership for the future and work a lot with you know, first-time female or, or um, black Latinx CEOs, because that's an important part of what we have to do as well. Yeah, your, your parents came to America as immigrants and envisioned a brighter future. Yeah. And through, they couldn't have imagined biotech. Biotech didn't exist as an industry. No. <laughs> you couldn't imagine it either when you were a young person. No. But this is what you've been able to do. And now there are a lot of other people coming up that that can slot in and, yeah. and make a big contribution. That's right. And you can help guide them. That's right. And, and, and if, you can, if you can give back and be a multiplier of that future, that's a really exciting thing to do. Have you picked up any hobbies or any fun activities in your, uh, in your new chapter? Uh, not really. Not really. I mean, I, I, you know, my, my favorite hobby is this industry. <laughs> to be honest with you, I, 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 uh, I, on the beach, I'm reading nature and, 
the New England Journal of Medicine, not, not, not a book. It's sad. But, um, but that's what I get excited about that. That's what I like to do. Fantastic. Thanks so much, John, for being on The Long Run. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was a sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.